This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. I'm standing in a valley in Buckinghamshire, but when I look across to the brow of the hill in front of me, frankly, it feels as though I am deep in rural France, because reaching above the beach and the oak trees, there's a fairy tale turreted chateau, a picture-perfect vision of the French Renaissance. Wadston Manor was the mastermind of Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild, Raised in Frankfurt and Vienna with family in England, he was part of a genuinely pan-European family. When Ferdinand built this magnificent place in the late 1870s, he was thinking beyond national boundaries. Wadston was created as an internationalist stage set for the critical business of cross-cultural and geopolitical understanding. Catherine, hi, it's Bethany. Hello, Bethany, nice to meet you. Nice to see you. So this is Catherine Taylor, who's the head archivist here. Catherine, I can imagine if you've got enough money why you would choose to build yourself a fantasy castle to live in. But do we know specifically why Ferdinand created it in in this kind of extraordinary style? Ferdinand grew up on the continent and he says that he'd been greatly impressed by the Chateau of the Terrain on a visit and he wanted to create something of that here at Wadsden and that was why he'd chosen a French architect, Detailleur, and a French landscape gardener, Lane, to help to create Wadsden and pulling motifs from different chateaux. So although it invokes many of those chateaux, it is in itself something unique. I'd imagine a project like this had some challenges when it was first started. Oh yes, it did. Ferdinand says that he bought Wadsden despite its faults and flaws. And the biggest one was the fact that he had to look at getting a water supply up here. So he went to the Chiltern Hills Water Company, who were based in Aylesbury, and they laid seven miles of pipes up the hill to the house. He said, the difficulty of building a house is insignificant compared with the labour of transforming a bare wilderness to a park. And I was so disheartened at first that during four years I rarely went near the place. Well, I mean, that sounds impatient, though, to me. (laughs) Four years, it's actually not very long to build something of this scale. I can't believe that we'd do it any quicker in this day. And of course, we've just entered the age of photography. Was the process recorded in any way? We have wonderful photographs of some of the process. So we've got a wonderful image of a team of six personal mares, which Ferdinand imported from France, pulling a gigantic tree on a cart of four wheels. And the Duke of Marlborough had denuded the hillside of trees to sell them for timber. And Ferdinand wanted to reclothe it so that it had that real sense of mystery that the approach road was hidden by trees and the house was only seen as you got to the top of the hill. So he brought trees in from the surrounding countryside and they had to take the telegraph wires down on the roads as they pulled them through by these teams of horses. It must have been the most amazing experience for the people living in the local villages. I've got the enormous privilege of walking in through the 20-foot-high, massive oak doors. So that's really interesting, because when you're standing outside, it just feels as though you're looking at a perfect example of the French Renaissance. But in here, 
It's much more 18th century, so there are red carpets, beautiful red damask drapes. And, and I'm hoping on here's Pippa. This is Pippa Shirley, who's head of collections and Hello. gardens. Hello, Hello, Pippa. I'm hoping you can explain this slight paradox for me, because the outside does feel very different to what you find in here. It feels completely different, doesn't it? And for me, it's one of the most startling aspects of this house, that you start in a French Renaissance world outside, and you come in and suddenly you're in Paris and you're in a Paris townhouse, furthermore. And I think that was really important to Ferdinand. I think what he was doing here in a very real sense, aside from all the wonderful entertaining and bringing people here for house parties and so forth, was that he was creating an appropriate setting for his collection. So he wanted you to be in an 18th century world. But then there's even a sort of a further disconnect in some respects because we're in these very French 18th century interiors and yet on the walls are English 18th century aristocrats by Reynolds and Gainsborough and Romney, sort of the high point of, of portraiture at that stage. So there's this odd kind of French-English thing going on which runs through the whole of the house and it's very, very specific to Ferdinand and his taste. Why was it so important to him to, to kind of pick on French taste and French style at this time? Well, I, I think it was a combination of things, really. I mean, he was fascinated by French history. He was very knowledgeable. But he also was very, very focused on having the best. And I think at this moment, French 18th century decorative arts it was just seen as being the absolute high point, the gold standard of production in terms of craftsmanship, in terms of style, in terms of design. And so in a, in a rather Rothschild way, he wanted to have the best in his collections and that for him meant 18th century French material. As I'm looking around me, I can see gilt on the ceiling. There are fabulous chandeliers over a beautifully laid out dining table with rose displays. What is this house saying to the outside world? Well, I think in a very real way, it's saying, look at me and look at the man who built me. Because the thing about Wadsden is that to a large extent, it's designed for effect and for impact. And there's a very almost kind of theatrical concept going on here from the moment you drive through the gates and you wind up that long drive then you arrive at the north fountain and suddenly you know ta-da there's this extraordinary building this was lived in by somebody who wanted to impress he was going to bring his friends his family the political elite here for weekend house parties he was going to entertain them in the most lavish way imaginable he was going to impress them with his extraordinary collection so it's all about showing what he could do, who he could assemble, the kind of influence that he had. So it's a, it's a very multi-layered house, this, but a huge part of it is about wow. Well, Pippa, perhaps you could help me to understand some of the, the complexity and the levels of nuance in this building. Absolutely. Let's go and take a look. Pippa, what a chandelier you've just illuminated some of those crystal elements are the size of a child's head. I mean, that's, I think, one of the most splendid chandeliers I've ever seen. It is magnificent, isn't it? And it hangs in the centre of this room, which is the breakfast room, which is quite a small room. It's square and it's lined in oak panels, which carved and are natural oak colour, but the details are all picked out in gilding. So it's a very Rothschild interior. It presents itself as very 18th century, but it has very 19th century elements to it as well. And where did these panels actually come from? Well, they come from townhouses in Paris. It's all architectural salvage. And here we have 
three different sets, all from the same house, which was called the Hotel Dodin on the Rue Richelieu. The house is still there. So here, it was very much about uh, changing tastes, changing fashions, and also the economic situation in France too. So these period rooms, as they became known, were becoming available on the art market, and people like Ferdinand were very, very well placed to snap them up. As you say, though, this is a house that's all about statement. So politically, what kind of a message is it giving out that Ferdinand's so interested in, in, in this French past? Politically, he's a liberal, like almost all members of his family. He's very fascinated by, as we've said, the history of France and particularly the, the whys and wherefores of the French Revolution. And he saw that the kind of sweeping away of the Ancien Régime as being a very inevitable thing. But yet he's very focused on and very fascinated by the physical traces of that Ancien Régime. So he's not saying that he's trying to recreate the Ancien Régime. This isn't about nostalgia. It's about an acknowledgement that there were extraordinary works of art produced in that period, but that it was a kind of inexorable move towards a greater degree of liberalism and democracy. So the whole house, is a, it's a kind of rapprochement. Yes, I think it is, and I think it's a very powerful statement of Europeanness and what can be gleaned and learned from you know, different European countries. And, and has that tradition of, of collecting continued in the house? It absolutely has. Through Lord Rothschild and the Rothschild Foundation, the house is completely alive and things are being added all the time. Lord Rothschild, we're sitting and having a cup of tea, the best drink of the day. Just tell me about Wadsdon, because obviously it's an architectural wonder. It's packed with treasures. But how do you feel about it as a family? It's the last great Rothschild house to survive with its collections intact. There were 45 built in the 19th century. And therefore, sentimentally and actually, I think it's a great thing to have the opportunity of keeping that one house going, not only going, but adding to it in all sorts of different ways. So we do try to improve the collection. And I think, with me, it's always part beauty, part history, part respect for skill that I find interesting. Now, Wadsden is an extraordinary mixture, really, of collecting and eccentricity and everything under the sun. So to have the opportunity of keeping that going, and I happen to love works of art and I have to be deeply interested in architecture and in our family history, so I'm deeply attached to the place. But Watson is an incredibly eccentric place to find this <laughs> French Renaissance 19th century chateau meant to incorporate all the best features of the various chateaux de la Loire in the middle of the English countryside. It is a very, very eccentric thing to find, and I think people find that interesting. This is very theatrical. It's kind of that moment before curtain up, isn't yes, it? Yes, I think the house has a real magic, actually, when it's closed. Yeah, particularly since we've walked into a pitch black room here. You know where the lights are, do you, Pippa? Do. Oh, good. So now you are in, in a way, the innermost sanctum. This is Ferdinand's private sitting room. There's a little staircase in that wall, which has a jib door, so you can't see it unless you really look which takes you up to his bedroom, and then his valet's bedroom was above that. So this was his little apartment, in a sense. 
because it is fabulous. I can see exquisite objects all around. But as you say, there is something a bit more intimate feeling about this space. This room feels much homelier and cosier than almost anywhere else in the house. Even the furniture is arranged in these, we think of them as kind of cosy corners. They're little nooks where you can just imagine sitting down having good old gossip with someone. Everything in this room is illuminated by the two electrical candelabra either side of the, of the mantelpiece, those lights that you flicked on when we came in. I mean, that must have been the absolute height of modernity because the electricity was installed here in the, in the 19th century, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was. And I think new technology is a really important part of this house. It's part of that whole sense that if you stayed here, it was to be completely luxurious. But the electricity was installed for the visit of Queen Victoria in 1890. And there's a story, is it true, that she was so fascinated by the electricity that she kept on switching the lights on and off? Yes, and also she sent her chef back to learn the recipes of the Rothschild kitchen because she'd had such a good lunch. It's a real compliment for Victoria to spend any time other than in one of her residences, isn't it? Yes, I I think that's right. And she invited herself to come here. She was obviously very interested in the whole concept, in a sense, of what Wadsden was. I think she also probably was rather curious about what her son, the Prince of Wales, what he was getting up to at these weekends, because he was a very frequent guest here. He was one of Ferdinand's great friends. So I'm sure there was that element of curiosity. But I think she was fascinated by the Rothschilds and just wanted to see what the place was like. And rather touchingly, after the visit, she presented Ferdinand with that very bust which now sits so proudly in his private sitting room. Yes, there she is, Queen Vic, looking in approvingly, rather than disapprovingly, I think. Thank you. So, here we are. (gasps) Yes, so, meet the elephant. What a marvellous thing. So, what I'm looking at is an elephant standing three, four feet tall, with a little carriage on his back and it looks like it does something. It's an 18th century automaton and when it's wound up music plays because there's a music box in the bass and then it springs to life so his ears flap, his eyes roll, his trunk goes round and round, he wags his tail, all the little figures that you can see and the figure of the prince on the top all revolve and he's got the most extraordinarily blingy diamante ornaments on his howdah and everywhere else and all of those start to spin. Did the visitors like this? Oh, yes. We think that he was acquired for when the Shah of Persia came for a day at Wadston. And the Prince of Wales was supposed to be here as part of the welcoming party, but it had to not come for various reasons. And when the Shah arrived, no Prince of Wales. And so the first thing that happened was that he disappeared into his bedroom in a sulk and refused to come out. And then Ferdinand wound the elephant. And the Shah was so thrilled by the elephant that he had it wound again and again and again and in fact at the end Paul Ferdinand had to distract his eminent guest because he was obviously rather worried that this newly acquired treasure was just going to you know go ping from overuse. So you've got to tempt the sulky child out of his bedroom with tricks and toys albeit the Shah of Persia. Absolutely. You really get the sense up here of this being a party house. Um, There were 32 bedrooms in the home, although only five loos. Not that that put off some of the finest in the land. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Hello. This looks like your happy place as an archivist. This is the library. And I'm sorry, because I just interrupted you. You're flicking through what looks like a brilliantly intriguing document there. This is... 
a reproduction of the visitor's book from the date of the first house party at Wadston right through till the house was given to the National Trust in 1957. So there's members of the Rothschild family from both the English but also the continental branches. There's the Prince of Wales and his Marlborough house set, there's courtiers, there's diplomats, both British and foreign. It's almost a bit of sort of competitive signature writing there. They're getting more and more flourishing as you go down, as you yes. go down the column. Lots of Austrian diplomats, as well as artists and writers. Henry James came. So you've got really some of the most powerful people in the world, some of the most creative people. Do you get the sense that they are letting their hair down? The rumours are that one of the reasons that the Prince of Wales came so often was that his mother kept him out of political circles and that he came to places like Wadston where he could meet with the men who made things happen. So it is thought that there were some quite high-powered political conversations happening, but there was also discussion of art. They went and experienced Ferdinand's love of horses, the aviary, the other animals he used to keep. So it was both business and pleasure. I'm sure there were very strategic conversations that happened here. One suspects sometimes something a bit looser as well. Absolutely. (laughs) If those wolves could talk, they would have a few tales to tell. I'm back with Pippa Shirley. Uh, We've come downstairs now. We've all heard of being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, but lining the walls here are silver garden shovels. (laughs) Could you explain to me quite what's going on, Pippa? Yes, of course. Well, whenever we have a significant guest or a visitor, we get them to plant a tree. And the first in that illustrious line was Queen Victoria. So we're standing here in front of her shovel, decorated with red silk ribbon all up the handle and coronets and the... The blade of the shovel is engraved. It's a very beautiful object. And then next door to that is the spade, which our current queen used when she visited to reopen the house after the centenary restoration in 1995. Mm. It's a sort of sister shovel. It's slightly more modest. It's it's got a small blue bow rather than a kind of flamboyant Victorian red silk one. Well, I couldn't possibly comment. No, no, naturally. So, Bethany, what I really want to show you is this picture here, which shows the French... President François Mitterrand coming for the summit which was held at Wadston with Margaret Thatcher. So that was a very great moment in the history of the House in May 1990. If you like, we can go outside and you can see where the photograph was taken. Lovely. We've arrived at the parterre, which is the closest bit of the garden, really, to the the back of the house. Exceptionally formal, this. You can probably hear there's a fountain here and very tightly packed beds. It's a kind of a zing of colour. It's quite filmic, actually. What was the idea behind the planning of this? So all of the principal reception rooms are designed to overlook this very, very ornate sort of floral statement of, of beauty. And it's very, very carefully and geometrically planned. It feels quite French, in fact, in terms of its layout. So very appropriate, then, that this is where Margaret Thatcher brought me to wrong. Absolutely. Well, presumably, he would have really felt quite comfortable out here. It would have all seemed very familiar. So the two premiers sort of strolled around, very much on their own. We don't know what they talked about. Um, And it all happened here. There was a helicopter which was about to take off and they'd put down a rather elaborate red carpet for Mitron. And when the helicopters started to rotate, it caught 
the red carpet, which is about to get entangled <laughs> in its blades. And I think Douglas Hurd and John King, if my memory is right, managed to rescue the situation <laughs> by throwing themselves on the red carpet. Very good. It's a kind of fairy tale location, but still a place with feet of clay. Still got practical issues too. But it was an occasion, and we like having those occasions. And um, I think it is a place that is quite inspirational to people. Important politics came out of that meeting. Do you think that Ferdinand would be pleased with what has now happened to the House? Because all of this is also being enjoyed by the general public. I think he would be very surprised, but I think he would also be delighted because contrary to his fear, which was that the whole thing would kind of crumble, I mean, he writes about the lonely cry of the night jars and the deserted towers. You know, he obviously thought his, his creation would just evaporate. But to find it still here, you know, over 100 years later, visited by you know, nearly 400,000 people a year and in kind of very good heart, I think he'd be thrilled, but quite shocked too. Baron Ferdinand Rothschild's choice of French Renaissance style for the exterior of Wadsden and of 18th century styles for the interiors clearly had little to do with nostalgia for the French Ancien Regime. He was one of a self-made cosmopolitan generation who appreciated the art of the past and utilised it to look ahead to a new kind of future. This extraordinary showcase space became a place where ideas of all kinds cultural, political and social could be shared. In some ways this is an estate-sized gallery for the very best international art that money can buy but it's more than that it's a shrine to the benefits of internationalism and a cogent theatre of power For more information about Wadston, including opening times and dates, go to www nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Wadston Manor Thank you for listening Don't forget this is part of a ten part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes's Ten Places on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app I'm Bethany Hughes This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. Autumn in the garden, whether it's raking, harvesting, planting or planning next year's big show or the winter's big task, there's always lots to do. It never really stops. Which is why the National Trust has created a brand new podcast all about our gardens, hosted by me, Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I really can't wait to walk you around some of the country's most stunning gardens, sharing their stories, secrets, and talking to the amazing people who help to look after these beautiful places and changing landscapes. If you subscribe, we'll even give you a few extra programmes throughout the month too. So find us now by searching for the National Trust Gardens podcast. And in the meantime, if you're at Stourhead or any other National Trust garden, say hello as you wander our estates.